0: Necessary on Monday morning. Phil Larson called. Said some kids are stealing the gnomes out of his garden again. Oh, the garden gnomes again? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna get right on that. On a more pressing matter, Joyce Byers can't find her son this morning. Mmm. Okay, I'm gonna get him now. a minute. Joyce is very upset. Flo, Flo, we've discussed this. Mornings are for coffee and contemplation. Chief, she's. Coffee your- and contemplation, Flo. Chapter 4, 80s Music. No single song as is important to Stranger Things as the Clash's 1982 classic, Should I Stay or Should I Go. We first hear the track in Season 1, Chapter 2, The Weirdo on Maple Street, as Jonathan is driving his car. The song triggers a flashback to several months before Will's disappearance. The brothers are hanging out in his bedroom, listening to a mixtape Jonathan made for Will including songs by The Clash, Joy Division, Television, The Smiths, and David Bowie. It will totally change your life, he tells Will. In the background, we hear their parents fighting, which it is suggested by Will's reaction is a common occurrence. To drown out the yelling, Jonathan turns up the music. The song in this way not only bounds the brothers It provides a kind of emotional shield against the pain and disappointments they face together, including the divorce of their parents. Should I Stay or Should I Go is among The Clash's most famous songs. Part rockability, part punk, with a killer guitar riff, it peaked at just 45 on the Billboard Billboard Hot 100, but was universally known in the alternative scene and has since become regarded as one of the best songs of the decade. Rolling Stone included the track on their 500 Greatest Songs of All Time list, ranking 228. It seemed probable that Jonathan would have bought the entire album, Combat Rock, which was released in June 1982 and also featured the hit song, Rock the Kabash. Much of that album critiqued America's foreign policy and moral decay. This was no surprise to followers of the band. In the late 1970s and early 80s, being a fan of The Clash was not just about the music, it was a declaration of identity. The Clash represented rebellion, dissent, and resistance to mainstream values, particularly after the release of London Calling in 1980, which some music critics praised as the best album of the decade, they were widely regarded as the greatest punk band of their generation. They were often referred to as the only band that matters, a promotional slogan that became a kind of cultural truism to their underground following. It's easy, then, to see their appeal to Jonathan. The cover of the Should I Stay or Should I Go fe- featured a grainy picture of Ronald Reagan suggesting the the question in the title might have political implications, yet at the time, many actually interpreted it more on uh, personal terms, as lead singer Mick Jones contemplating whether or not to leave the band. As it turned out, The Combat Rock was The Clash's last album with the original lineup. But what is its significance to Stranger Things? Besides capturing the sound and feel of the early 1980s, giving a sense of Jonathan's musical taste, it also plays a significant role in the story, serving as a means of connection and foreshadowing the difficult conundrum uh, facing Will. Should I Say or Should I Go resurfaces multiple times throughout seasons 1 and 2. In chapter 2, The widow on Maple Street, Will uses it to communicate with his mother Joyce from the Upside Down, making the song play on the boombox in his bedroom. Note how at that moment, moment, Joyce must decide whether to stay at the house or go. We hear the song again in Chapter 4, The Body, as Eleven manages to channel channel Will's faint voice singing through the walkie-talkie. Will is also humming the song as he hides in Castle Briar's shivering as the monster nears in Chapter 7, The Bathtub, The song appears again in Season 2, Chapter 8, The Mind Flayer, as Jonathan, Mike, Chief Hopper, and his mother Joyce attempt to communicate with Will through Morse code. Just as Jonathan promised in Chapter 2, then the song literally helped save Will's life. albeit in ways Jonathan probably did not foresee. On one level, it anchors and comforts Will. It gives him something to hold on to, something that reminds him of family and friends. It works the other way, too, offering his family and friends evidence that he is still there, that he is not gone. The song, in this way, is like an interdimensional conduit. It communicates beyond language, space, and time. Yet the song is not only used by Will to survive or even just to communicate with his family, but to communicate something. Listen to the lyrics. Should I stay or should I go now? If I go, there will be trouble. And if I stay, it will be double. That, in a nutshell, is Will's conundrum. It, You know, when he when he goes, it it. It causes trouble. His uh, abduction emotionally devastates his family and friends and turns the town of Hawkins upside down. Pardon the pun. Yet, when he is finally found at the end of season one and returns home, that trouble, true to the song, only doubles. As the upside down spreads, the demagogues multiply and the mind flayer threatens his and everyone he loves existence. It is revealing, though, that the song is what essentially allows him to subvent, uh, subvert the, the Mind flare in Season 2, Chapter 8, The Mind flare. It is not merely played by Jonathan for nostalgia. It helps him reconnect with his loved ones and deliver an important message, closed Gate. In this way, The Clash's hit track is not only part of the show's soundtrack, it is also deftly woven into its plot, themes, and characters. It symbolizes the brotherly bond between Jonathan and Will. It helps Will survive and helps his family and friends keep keep Hope alive. After he has been snatched into the Upside Down and it underscores Will's uh, uh, post-production plight as he struggles to escape the grip of the mind flare, Should I Stay or Should I Go experienced a resurgence of popularity following his prominent role in the show. It also earned an Emmy nomination for music supposer uh, Nora Felder who was somehow able to convince The Clash that the song should be featured in a show about extraterrestrial monsters. Fortunately, The Clash signed off. It is hard to imagine the show without the song, yet there is a lot more great music in Stranger Things worth taking a closer look at, from pop classics to more obscure deep cuts. The 80s was an epic decade for music, from the synth, Synthesizers to the music videos to the gender bending. It was the decade of synth pop, new wave, new wave hair metal, and hip hop. It was the decade of Michael Jackson and Madonna, Prince and the Police, U2 and Bruce Springsteen. That is a rich well from which to draw, and the show draws from it liberally to make both the period and story come to life. Jonathan's Mix. How did the Duffer brothers decide which songs to use for the show? For us, explains Ross Duffer, we didn't Tarotino it. It's not like this stuff was written in the script. The Clash's Should I Stay or Should I Go was planned, but all the other stuff, it was more us listening to as much 80s music as we possibly could and seeing what hit the right mark. It was definitely trial and error. Obviously we played around in terms of what would actually be played around 1983. For us, it was more about the tone and the feel and the stories these songs were telling. Stranger Things tends to cluster many of its songs around characters. For example, in addition to The Clash, a number of other punk, new wave, and alternative groups are featured in relation to Jonathan from The Smith, There Is a Light That Never Goes Out, which plays in one of Jonathan's flashbacks to Reagan's Youths Go Nowhere, which plays on his car stereo in Season 1, Chapter 2, The Weirdo on Maple Street. One of the more poignant examples comes at the end of Chapter 3, Holly Jolly, in the first of a string of effective mood songs used in Season 1. In this case, the song is Peter Gabriel's cover of the David Boy classic, Heroes. We know, of course, that Jonathan is a huge boy fan, from his conversations with Will to his mixtapes. There's even a poster of the pop icon on his bedroom wall. Yet the use of the song here is not only about Jonathan, but about everyone who cared about Will. The song starts just as what seems to be the boy's lifeless body being pulled out of the lake. We see Chief Hopper stunned and somber. We see Will's friends looking on with tears. We see sons and mothers embracing. The song in the episode end with Jonathan and Joyce holding on to each other, both nearly broken in silhouette, as police sirens approach in the distance. The Duffer Brothers credit producer Sean Levy, who directed this episode, for picking the song and beautifully weaving it into these final dramatic shots. Another Jonathan Byers called Mood Song plays near the beginning of Chapter 4, The Body. After Chief Hopper leaves the Byers' house, they are left to digest the tragic news about Will. The song Joy Division, B-Side, Atmosphere accompanies a montage of grieving. We see Joyce racked with pain, but still refusing to accept that her son is gone. Jonathan, meanwhile, lays in his bed with headphones on, overwhelmed with sadness. A requiem of loss and mourning. The song was originally released not long after the tragic death of Joy Division lead singer Ian Curtis in May 1980. Here in Stranger Things, it allows the the loss of Will, particularly his mother and brother, to fully sink in. In chapter five, The Flea and the Acrobat, we hear the haunting New Order uh, instrumental, uh, Elegia, as we, as we watch an emotional montage of Will's friends and family preparing for his funeral. New Order was formed after Droid Division lost its lead singer Curtis to suicide. Released on their studio album Low Life in 1985, Elegia was dedicated to Curtis's memory. In Stranger Things, as we listen to its uh, synths and melancholy guitars, we see people going through the ritualistic routines of a funeral before looking on at Will's casket as a priest delivers a sermon. It is another powerful use of a piece of music to capture the devastation of losing a loved one. We hear a number of other tracks that feel culled from Jonathan's playlist, including deep cuts like Blackout by Minnesota New Wave Band Swing Set and Nocturnal, a dark cinematic track by British rock band Echo and The Bunnymen. How did the Duffers rationalize a kid from a small town in Indiana having such extensive knowledge of music? According to music supervisor Nora Fedler, it was, a simple, it was simply a natural extension of Jonathan's unique identity. With this photography, he is always looking further to capture something unique and special through the lens, explains Fedler. It would only seem natural that he would also be curating his own personal music playlists and not relying on what's being fed to the town on the local radio station. Jonathan would surely, would surely, but to know, no pun intended, what else is there out there? By extension, Jonathan's mix... Both the actual mixtapes he makes his brother Will, as well as the music clearly connected to his taste, introduces the audience to a wider palette of music, outside the bigger hits and superstars from the 1980s. We get to hear groups like The Clash, Reagan's Youth, The Smiths, Joy Division, and New Order. Not that Stranger Things doesn't also give us more pop stream main mainstream pop. For that, at least in part, we have Nancy and Steve to thank. Pop life. Throughout season one, the music accompanying Nancy and Steve sticks to more familiar pop fare, songs one probably would have heard on the radio in the nineteen eighties. For example, in season one, chapter one, the vanishing of Will Byers, as Nancy and Steve's homework session turns into a makeout session, we hear Tonto's massive hit "Africa." That track is, is all about its cheesy, earnest 80s glory, reached number one in February of 1983, the year season one takes place. It has since become a pop culture favorite, featured on everything from Community to The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, on which Fallon sings it with Justin Timberlake in a hilarious summer camp skit. Its appearance on Stranger Things effectively captures the relatively wholesome, vanilla charm of Steve and Nancy's relationship. After Nancy and Steve take their relationship to the next uh, level at the house in Chapter 2, The Weirdo on Maple Street, we hear another big radio hit at the ending credits roll, the Bengals cover of the Simon and Garfunkel classic, Hazy Shade of Winter. Which peaked at number two in 1987. Some fans of the show noted that it was one of the uh, several musical uh, or creative liberties, depending on your point of view. Since the show came out four years after season one takes place, kind of a rule we had was that it—it's a song. If it's a song a character is listening to in the show, then it really needed to be from that era," explained Matt Duffer. It was. If it was just playing for the show, then it was all about tone. At the beginning of Chapter 3, Holly Jolly, meanwhile, as Nancy and Steve have sex for the first time, we hear Farners' power ballad waiting for a girl like you, juxtaposed ironically with Barr being taken into the Upside Down. Well played, Matt Duffer Brothers. Farners' adult-oriented rock samples spent a record ten weeks at the number two spot on the Billboard Hot 100 through late 1981 and early 1982, held out by the top spot by Olivia Newton-John's anthem, Physical. Nancy and Steve were probably not the only couple for whom the soft rock single was used to set the mood, although it obviously didn't work out as well for Barb. The hits keep coming, it seems, every time Steve meets up with Nancy. In Chapter 2, The Weirdo on Maple Street, while they chug beers and push each other into the pool, we hear Modern English's 1982, I Melt With You. In Chapter 6, The Monster, Corey Hart's synth-pop classic, Sunglasses at Night, plays as Steve pulls up to Nancy's window. That song came out in the summer of 1984, receiving heavy radio airplay, which propelled it into the top ten. We hear another big hit in the first chapter of season two, Mad Max, as Nancy and Steve discuss his paper and future. The the Romantics 1984 single, Talking in Your Sleep, also plays. That song reached number three in early 1984, the Romantics' biggest hit. There seems to be a bit of foreshadowing in the song, as in the song track as well, which is about unintentionally divulging secrets. It is the next episode when a plastered Nancy reveals to Steve that their state of denial about Barb and relationship, more generally, is bullshit. That episode, incidentally, also features Duran Duran's infamous classic, Girls on Film, from the British band's self-debut, self-titled album, the song announced Duran Duran as one of the biggest groups of the 1980s although as it has also become known as one of the more gratuitous videos of the 1980s or the 1980s MTV movie television era. It's hard to tell if Steve has any favorite genres or artists or if he simply sticks to what's on the radio. Somehow, he he seems to like a Huey Lewis and the news kind of guy. Although, he might also be put into the 70s rock we hear as Raise a Little Hell by Canadian rock band Trooper when he he opens the door for Nancy and Barb in Season 1, Chapter 2, The Weirdo on Maple Street. The Queens hammer to fall in Season 2, Chapter 6, The Spy, and he and Dustin prepare to check on Dart. We get a greater sense of of Nancy's taste as the show evolves, which, in addition to more popular tones or tunes, also contains some out-of-the-box surprises. For example, in her bedroom, instead of an artist one might expect like Madonna, we see a poster of Debbie Harry from Blondie, an edgier choice that shows more independence than one might assume. During a phone conversation with Barb in chapter two, The Weirdo on Maple Street, we also hear British new wave band, DeBocchi uh Modes enjoy the silence, which granted isn't nearly as out of the box as some of Jonathan's favorites, but does put her closer in, in to him in terms of preferences. As the series progresses, the music reflects the changing dynamics of Nancy's relationships. In Season 2, Chapter 3, The polywog, for example, after Nancy breaks up with Steve, we see Jonathan and Nancy sitting on his car, having lunch at school, as the Psychedelics Furs 1984 New Wave ballad, The Ghosting You, plays in the background. The lyrics describe... Uh, describe finding someone who suddenly changes the way you experience the world and coincides perfectly with Jonathan and Nancy's mutual confession about the the losses they have experienced and their recognition that they get with each other in a most in a most in a way most do not the music in between the alternative tastes of Jonathan and the more mainstream synth-pop of Nancy, symbolizes the melding of their relationship. Tellingly, in the next episode, Chapter 4, Will the Wise, after lying to her parents about where she will be that night, we hear The Clash's 1981 single, "Radio This Is Radio Clash, as Nancy walks out to meet Jonathan. In Chapter 5, Dig Dug, Likewise, as Nancy and Jonathan are pulling up at Mary uh, Maury Bauman's Bunker, Can I Do What I Want? A song by electronic punk band Shock Therapy plays on the car stair, stereo. Not only do these songs communicate her connection to Jonathan, they also express her glowing rebellion and empowerment as she seeks to uh, redress Barb's death. Rocky Like a Hurricane We are introduced to another strain of 80s music when we meet Billy in Season 2, Heavy Metal. As Billy pulls up in his california plated Camaro and steps out in jean jacket and boots, the metal anthem, Rocky Like a Hurricane, accompanies his and Sister Max's arrival in Hawkins. Released in 1984 by the German rock band, The Scorpions, Rocky Like a Hurricane remains a popular stadium anthem. It was in heavy rotation on MTV in the mid-1980s, part of a wave of hard rock and metal bands that also included ACDC, Iron Maiden, uh, Van Halen, Def Leppard, Poison, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and Motley Crue. We hear a number of other metal tracks in relation to Billy throughout season two. For example, when when he is driving with his sister Max complaining about Hawkins in chapter two, Trick or Treat Freak. Ted Nugent's 1980 song, "Wango Tango, is playing. Later in that episode, at the Halloween party, as Billy demonstrate, it demonstrates his kegging proudness, we hear the 1983 Motley Crue song, Shout at the Devil. At the same party, Jonathan sees a girl with black hair and makeup and mistakenly asks if she's just like a member from the glam rock group band KISS. In fact, as Jonathan should know, given his alternative aptitude, she is dressed as Suex Sue Sue from Suex and the Banshees. We hear some deeper metal cuts as the season continues. In Season 2, Chapter 5, Dig Dug, as Billy drops Max off at the arcade, Metal Sport blares from the car radio, a song from obscure metal Ban Hitman. In Chapter 6, The Spy, while he lifts weights at his house, he is listening to Round and Round by hair Mer, metal band Rat as MTV plays on the TV. Billy's metal obsession is even more evident in his room decor. On the, on the wall, we see a poster of Metallica's 1983 album, Kill 'Em All. We also see a poster for the more obscure British metal band Tanks 1982 album, Filth Hounds of Hades, which may also be a clever nod to the demo dogs that began to wreak havoc on Hawkins in season two. Oldies. Most of the pre-1980s music in Stranger Things correlates with the adults. For example, when Chief Hoffer walks into the police station in Season 1, Chapter 1, The Vanishing of Wool Byers, we hear Can't Seem to Make You Mine, a 1966 song by the rock group The Seeds. In Season 2, Chapter 2, Trick-or-Treat Freak, we get a better sense of Chief Hopper's uh, musical taste as he is flipping through his record collection at the old cabin. We see him pause on an album by 70s rock band Supertramp before settling on Jim Carosi, although, all right, here we go, he says, before putting on Carosi's 1972 track, You Don't Mess Around With Jim. Hopper displays some classic dancing moves before the pair get to work cleaning up the cabin. In season two, we... We also get a pretty epic mix of lame parent music from Joyce's new boyfriend, Bob Newby. The generational contrast between Bob's tastes and Jonathan's tastes is highlighted in chapter 1, Mad Max, when when Jonathan is trying to convince Will that it's okay to be different and weird. Who would you rather be, boy or Kenny Rogers, he asks? Will grimaces at the idea of Kenny Rogers. Exactly, says Jonathan. It's no contest. Well, Will says some people like Kenny Rogers, just as Will says it, Bob walks in. I love Kenny Rogers. The boys laugh as the unapologetically dorky and enduring Bob picks up a VHS rental of Mr. Mom, whoing with delight. In the next episode, Trick or Treat Freak, sure enough, we hear Bob listening to a Kenny Rogers duet with Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton, the 1983 classic "Islands Allen, in the Stream," as he enjoys slow dance in the living room. Incidentally, another Kenny Roger Donnie, Dolly Parton duet, "The Bargain Store." Is playing when Nancy and Jonathan are getting supplies to kill the monster at the Army's supply store in Season 1, Chapter 6, The Monster. Karen Wheeler also brings some solid parent music to the table. In the Season 2 finale, The Gate, as she soaks in a bubble bath and reads a trashy romance novel, she is listening to The Way We Were, Baba Sands. Uh, Sappy Ballard from the 1973 movie of the same name. Notably, the music gets a little more upbeat and current after Billy shows up. After she watches him take off in his Camaro, Donna Donna Summers' I Do Believe I Fell In Love plays the the B-side to the classic 1983 hit, She Works Hard for the Money. Setting the Mood there are some other great mood songs, songs that are less character-based instead of establishing a certain feel or tone in the latter half of season one. For example, in chapter seven, The Bathtub, as the kids prepare this sensory uh, deprivation pool in the Hawkins Middle School Gymnasium, Fields of Choral, played by Van Gillis, If the name isn't familiar, it certainly was in the 1980s. A Greek composer who helped bridge the worlds of classical and electronic music, Ben Gillis created the iconic music for Chariots of Fire, 1981, which won the Academy Award for Best Score, and Blade Runner, 1982, one of the most popular science fiction soundtracks of all time. He also contributed to the soundtrack of Carl Sagan's groundbreaking TV show Cosmos, a personal voyage explored more in chapter 8. In chapter 8, The Upside Down, meanwhile we hear Horizon played by Tangerine Dream while Chief Hopper has a flashback to his daughter's battle with cancer. Like ben Gillis, Tangerine Dream, an electronic group from Germany, help revitalize and revolutionized the sound of music film with synth-heavy and buoyant scores. Among more than 20 films they contributed to in the 1980s were Risky Business, starring Tom Cruise, and Firestarter, the Stephen King adaptation, starring Drew Barrymore. In Stranger Things, Horizon creates an uh, intensity that not only captures the gravity of Hopper's loss, but also stresses the importance of the mission at hand. Okay, so I'm going to break the wall here for just a few seconds. Okay, um, before I go back to reading the rest of uh, Setting the Mood. Okay, so one of my favorite artists of all time of over uh, 20 some odd <laughs> years is um, is featured in the show as well. And when I heard it, I literally jumped out of the seat while uh, while watching this scene in Stranger Things. Anyway, um, here I go back to uh, reading. Finally, there is Moby's When It's Cold, I'd Like to Die, also in Chapter 8, The Upside Down. This one featured in the dramatic scene when they find and resuscitate Will, which is juxtaposed with the final moments of his daughter, Jane's life. One of only a handful of songs not from the 1980s. When It's Cold, I'd Like to Die, came out in in 1995 on the album Everything Is Wrong, a relatively obscure collection of haunting, electronic-based songs. In Stranger Things, it carries one of the more important, powerful scenes in Season 1, as the audience finally fills in the gaps from Hopper's past and the relief of rescuing Will is subdued by another child that could not be saved. Such songs give stranger help give stranger things an emotional death not found in many genre films. The show, however, is just as effective at establishing upbeat tones. Obvious examples of this include Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. as the boys get ready for Halloween, as well as Whip It by the post punk New Wave band Devo. The later track which plays as the boys pull up to the arcade in Season two, chapter one. Uh, chapter one, Mad Max, was originally released in 1980 and became an unexpected hit, due in part to its quirky music video, which became a staple of the early MTV era. The seemingly nonsensical lyrics satirize music optimism with a string of motivational cliches, inspired in part by the novelist uh, Thomas Pouchon, It fits the boys' quirky outsider identities while offering a feel of some of the unique, colorful sounds of the 1980s. Early in Season 2, we hear another Zygai song, a song that establishes a sense of the period and place, Just Another Day, by Oingo Boingo, an American new wave band. The song plays to a montage of song, of shots from around Hawkins, a woman jogging, a radio shack, a a theater uh, marquee featuring the Terminator, people heading to work. While Just Another Day was released in 1985, it feels right at home in the fall of 1984. Finally, uh, another important Zeitgeist character song comes in Season 2, Chapter 7, The Lost Sister as Eleven boards a bus to Chicago. The song Bon Jovi's classic rock, Runaway, a bit obvious, perhaps, but effective. The song was released in 1983 and became Bon Jovi's first top 40 hit in 1984. In the show, of course, the song about a girl who feels trapped and ready to break out on her own matches Eleven's state of mind. Incidentally, the visuals in the scene also uh, recall Pat Benetard's uh, music video for Love is a Battlefield, a song later featured in the season. The Holy Trinity of Pop At least over his first two seasons, there has been no music in Stranger Things from the Holy Trinity of 80s pop, Michael Jackson, Prince, and Madonna. Given the subject matter of the show, it is particularly surprising that no Michael Jackson music has been featured since 1983-1984 was the peak of the thriller mania. Yet, this absence seems seems to be more of a licensing issue than an oversight. As Stranger Things fans know, Striller was used in the first promotional trailer for Season 2. It premiered at Comic-Con in San Diego and blew audiences away. It has since been watched over 15 million times on YouTube. The Duffer Brothers had in mind to use the song for Season 2 from the get-go and fell in love with the trailer. However, getting the rights to use the song proved far trickier than they had anticipated. There's not been a trailer for any of my movies that I have obsessed over and gotten more personally hands-on over more than this Thriller trailer. Acknowledged producer Sean Levy. Just weeks before Comic Con recalls Levy, they had their hearts shattered because we were told for a variety of reasons that trailer that thriller was just not licensable. In its place, another trailer was created with different music and shipped to San Diego. The Duffer brothers and I would watch it, recalls Levy, and it really ate away at us because we knew it was a good trailer. But with Thriller, it's next level. So Levy refused to take no for an answer. He persisted, begged, until he finally got the green light to use the track. While there is no music from Jackson in the actual series, then Thriller was at least featured in the trailer. Moreover, there seemed to be a a couple of uh, subtle nods to the pop star in season two. The opening shot of the misty graveyard, including a skeleton hand reaching out from the ground, recalls the iconic visuals from Thriller. In addition, a person at the Halloween party can be seen rocking Michael Jackson's feature red jacket from Billie Jean. We also see someone at the party dressed as Madonna, circa like a virgin. As for Prince, 1985 was the year his blockbuster album Purple Rain hit its peak. So we will hear something in season three. The Snowball Playlist. The Hawkins Middle School Snowball is a great conclusion to Season 2 for a number of reasons. High on that list, however, has to be the selection of music. It begins with Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield. The song plays appropriately as Steve is preparing Dustin for the emotional terrain of the school dance. Pat Benatar's song peaked at number 5 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the fall of 1983, and earned the singer, a badass rocker who regularly featured on MTV in its early years, her fourth Grammy Award for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance. Next up is a bright synth cut, Twist of Fate, by Olivia Newton-John. The song plays as Dustin makes his way into the dance, briefly exchanging pleasantries with Mr. Clark, Thanks My Lord, and Nancy. Twist of Fate also reached number 5 on the charts in late 1983, though it is less known by the average music listener featured in the 1983 romantic comedy Two of a Kind, which saw Newton-John reunite reunite with actor John Travolta. The song was Newton-John's attempt to establish a hipper image following her goody-goody role as Sandy in Grease, 1978. In addition to providing the right uh, buoyant mood for the dance, it also seems to subvertly uh, foreshadow the the twists of fate awaiting the characters in the days and months to come. After Dustin finds his friends and they give him a hard time about his jerry curl, uh, the upbeat atmosphere of the dance suddenly slows down as Cindy Lauper's classic synth, pop ballad, time after time, begins. Released as a single in 1984, the song was Lauper's first number one hit. It followed her generational anthem, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, which peaked at number two. Both songs came from her 1983 album, She's So Unusual, an album that established Lauper as one of the era's most unique, quirky, and talented icons. Time at the Time is one of her most enduring songs, still regularly uh, receiving radio airplay and covered by numerous artists, from Miles Davis to Sarah McLachlan. It was also, of course, a staple of school dances in the 1980s, making it a perfect choice for the snowball. And finally, there is Every Breath You Take, the most popular song of 1983, topping the charts, for an incredible eight weeks and one of the biggest hits of the decade. Synchronicity, the song like Time After Time, was in popular regular rotation at dances in the 1980s and continues to be popular today. In Stranger Things, it hits right at the climatic moment when Mike sees Eleven walk in. However, in many ways, the song is darker than its tone suggests. Its songwriter, Sting, has repeatedly registered his bemusement at how often it is misinterpreted as a simple love song, when its lyrics communicate obsession, jealousy, surveillance, and control. The Duffer brothers, however, were aware of this and perfectly utilized the song's paradoxical uh, nature. We first hear it as a simple love song at a dance, but as it continues, We move outside the glittery confines of the gymnasium. The camera gradually begins to tilt in Dutch angle. Oh, can't you see? You belong to me. The music begins to fade and is finally shallowed as we find ourselves looking at a much darker version of Hawkins Middle School in Indy Upside Down. Above it now is an ominous red sky, thunder and lightning and the mind flare ominously wrapping around the building. Suddenly, the lines of police's hit song, Every step you take, every breath you take, I'll be watching you, aren't so innocent. We always wanted to get that song in there, acknowledged Matt Duffer. It felt like it worked for the romantic part, but also there's something creepy about the song. I'll be watching you. That led into our final reveal of the Mind Flayer over the gym. There is something that's still there, something still watching them. I like that it had a kind of dual meaning. I'd just been trying to find a place for that song since season one, so I really wanted it. Netflix was passionate and really wanted it in too. I was not; It was not super cheap, but I'm glad we got it in there. Given how definitely the show incorporates music from should I stay or should I go to wanting a girl like you, it is a perfect way to end the season with the music operating as both soundtrack and subtext.